The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. This broadcast is all about making the journey from this world 
the world that is to come. That's what we're about. And there's a parable that I want to read for you as we begin this time together about the journey that all of us are called to make, but but according to Jesus, many will not be successful in that journey. It's the greatest desire of my heart that you would be successful in this journey. But it's a very expensive journey. And it will cost you everything. Remember, Jesus said, the pearl of great price. You sell all that you have to buy it. He was not exaggerating. It is necessary to sell all that we have if we're going to buy that pearl of great price. But let me share this this parable with you. It's found in Matthew, the 22nd chapter. I'm going to read it to you from a literal translation, the lavender translation of the New Testament. And Jesus, having answered, spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is compared to a man, a king, who prepared a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his servants to call the ones having been invited to the wedding feast. But they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, You must tell the ones having been invited, Look, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and the fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But having paid no attention, they went their ways, the one to his own field, the other to his business. But the others, having taken hold of his servants, mistreated and killed them. But the king, having heard about this, became enraged, and having sent his troops, destroyed those murders and burned their city. Then he says to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but the ones having been invited were not worthy. So you must go to the thoroughfares of the streets, and as many as you may find you may invite to the wedding feast. And those servants, after having gone out into the roadway, brought together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with reclining guests. But the king, having entered to look over the reclining guests, he saw a man there, not having dressed himself in a wedding garment. And he says to him, Friend, how did you enter here not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Having bound his feet and hands, you must take him up and throw him out into the darkness, the furthest out. There will be weeping and grinding of teeth. 
Now many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Here's the problem we face. Many who were invited to come to the wedding banquet, that is, the final feast of the Lord, where he marries his bride, the church. Many were invited to be a part of that, but most were disinterested. They did not want to come. And of course, he's speaking first about the Jewish people that he was addressing. He invited them to come first. When many would not come, he then sent his disciples out in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring as many in as would come. I'm very grateful for that because that allowed me to be invited and it allowed you to be invited. But to be invited and to decide to go to the wedding banquet is not sufficient. There's another step involved. And that step involves dressing in the garments that are given by the king's attendants so that when the king comes in and he looks at his people, he will not see you not dressed in the wedding garment. Now we find in the book of Revelation that the wedding garments are white, white linen, pure and clean. And they stand for the righteousness of the saints, the righteous acts of the saints. The wedding garment is given by faith in Jesus Christ. There's a whole message going out today in the American church that you don't have to put on that garment. That when Jesus or the Father looks at you, he won't see you. He'll just see Jesus. And so you'll be dressed in Jesus, but it will just cover up all of the filth and the sin. That's a lie. Can you imagine? No, the judgment is quick and firm. Friend, how did you enter not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless because he knew he had been invited to receive by faith the full regeneration of his life. He knew that he had been offered righteousness that was real, not make-believe. And the king said to the servants, bind his feet and his hands, take him out, and throw him out into the darkness, the furthest out, that is, into destruction, into death. The death sentence was passed on this man. And he it goes on, Jesus says, there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. This is the weeping and grinding of the teeth of the church who refused to put on the wedding garment of real righteousness. They were not interested. They wanted the things of the world. They wanted to participate 
in the things of darkness, not in the things of Jesus Christ. Many of you are living in the twilight zone. You don't think you can lose your salvation. And so, as many preachers say today, all you can lose is some of your fellowship with God. Well, this is not about fellowship. This is about whether you get to remain in the wedding feast of the Lord God at the end of time, or whether you will be cast out into hell. And when you see the truth of the judgment of God against unrighteousness, many called Christians will be weeping, grinding their teeth, angry that their preacher didn't tell them the truth about this. Well, if we're going to make this journey safely from this world to the next, we're going to have to allow Jesus, by the power of his blood, to make us righteous, to do his incredible work in our hearts and in our lives, to wash and scrub, to make clean and pure and holy, to make righteous by faith in Jesus. It's not a work of, of flesh. It's a work of the Spirit. Now, Jesus was very frank in saying, the flesh counts for nothing. Everything that matters is in the Holy Spirit. Look with me quickly. We have much to cover today, but I want to share this with you quickly. In the Gospel of John, Nicodemus comes by night. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you may be born out of water, that is the washing away of all sin, and the Spirit, he's not able to enter the kingdom of God. The thing having been born out of the flesh is flesh, and the thing having been born out of the Spirit is spirit. You should not marvel that I say this to you. It is necessary for you to be born from above. To be born from above. Total change. The flesh counts for nothing. In other words, we live today on one plane in flesh. I have a flesh hands, flesh body. But flesh means something else. It also means evil, uncleanness. Now, Adam lived in the flesh, but he dwelled in the Garden of Eden. Eve lived in the flesh, but she was in the garden without sin. They were clean and pure and holy before God. So it's not the human body that is sinful. It's the evil that we invite in as we listen to the devil and rebel against the Most High God. And because we are children of Adam and Eve, 
we were born after their kind with a propensity to sin. We will not be judged because of Adam's sin. We will be judged because of our own sin. What we have done. And Jesus is saying, look, you have to be born from above in the spirit. We will live when we put aside this flesh body in a new body given to us by Jesus. A body like his. A heavenly body. We'll still be who we are your last day on earth and your first day in heaven, your character will be just the same. It won't change. What changes, according to Paul, in the twinkling of an eye, is you will be given a new body. And you'll enter into heaven in that new body. You'll be caught up with Jesus. The problem comes, okay, How do we enter that new world? We talk about salvation. Well, what does that mean? It means to be saved. What does that mean? If I look across my yard to the neighbor who has a swimming pool, and I see him in his pool, swimming, doing some laps, and I race across the yard, and I dive into the pool, and I put him in a, in a lifesaver's lock, and I drag him up on the, on the deck, and he's yelling and screaming, what are you doing? Let me go. You're crazy. Well, when he is finally free, he's going to call the police. He's going to report me for abuse. I'll be arrested for a for abusing my neighbor. On the other hand, if I look across to my neighbor and I see that my neighbor is struggling in the water, crying for help, and I race across, I dive in, and I save him from the deep end of his swimming pool, he will be forever my friend because I have saved him from drowning. Well, if you have no sense in your heart that you need to be saved, and I come to you and I say, did you know Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful life for you? You're going to look at me and say, you crazy man, I don't need to be saved and I have a wonderful life already. I have my wife and my children. I have my work. I'm a happy man. I don't need Jesus. And many in America today have decided they don't need Jesus. He's an add-on that they don't believe in. If you have never been lost, how can you be found? And many of you have not ever known that you were lost. Until you know and understand 
your true condition before God until you are willing to acknowledge your sin and to acknowledge that the garment you have on is not sufficient to go to the wedding feast and that you are going to die. I remember many years ago, I went to Weimar, Switzerland. I was working at that time in a ministry on M Street in Georgetown in a coffee house and free medical clinic. I went to Weimar's Switzerland to study for a month under Francis Schaeffer, who was a, a very famous and wise apologist for the gospel of Jesus. Probably one of the greatest 20th century apologists anywhere found in the church. I sat listening and he began to answer questions about how he ministered to very bright university students, atheists, agnostics. And he said, I ask them questions. And when I see where they stand and what their beliefs are about reality, I then begin to ask them questions, searching questions about, okay, this is what you believe. Now, where will that lead you? And where will that lead you? And where will that lead you? Until finally, they're like Nietzsche, they're ready to commit suicide. He said, until a pagan is ready to commit suicide, seeing the desperateness of their situation, they will not be open to an honest telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they're finally at the end of themselves, I begin to tell them the gospel story, and many grasped it as a drowning man would grasp a helping hand to save them from drowning. It's true. Until you know your desperate condition, you will not rightly apprehend or know the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom of God came to save us but if you don't know the desperate need for his salvation, my telling you that Jesus loves you will fall on utterly deaf ears. Or if I entice you to become a Christian by offering you all of the benefits of following Jesus Christ, you will come as a consumer and you will not understand that you are going to die that you need Jesus Christ. Now, there is in the book, Pilgrim's Progress, an account that I'd like to briefly share with you today.
It begins this way. John Bunyan, the author of this most famous allegory in the English language, was not following Jesus. And the word of the Lord came to him. And this is what the Lord spoke. He heard it with his ears. Wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or have thy sins and go to hell? See, man is destined to die once, and then after that to face the judgment. John Bunyan heard that very clearly. And he said, I will leave my sin. It's very clear that John Bunyan, that John Wesley, and many others, Jonathan Edwards, they all believed that you had to leave your sin to go to heaven. they did not believe that you could continue to walk in wickedness and be covered by some false covering called grace. Now, grace is not false. It's the false covering of cheap grace spoken of by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That cheap grace is a fable. So, he began this allegory with these words. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came to a certain place where there was a cave. I lay down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. And in this dream, I saw a man clothed in rags It's obvious in this allegory that he is speaking about himself going into the cave, that is, going into prison. And there he saw a man clothed in rags. Isaiah 64, 6, Luke 14, 33, Psalm 38, Habakkuk 2, 2, and I could give you other scriptures they all say the same thing, that the man, before he knows the Lord Jesus Christ, is dressed in rags. He continued, <clears throat> I saw a man clothed in rags standing in a place with his face turned away from his own house. He had a book in his hand and a heavy burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and begin to read. And as he read, he wept and he trembled. Not being able to contain himself, he cried out in a loud voice, What shall I do? In this condition, he went home. He tried to keep to himself for as long as he could. 
so that his wife and children would not see him in distress. But after a short time, his anguish had increased so much that he could not remain silent. So he began to share with his wife and his children what was on his troubled mind. And this is what he told them. Dear wife and children, I am greatly troubled by this burden that torments me and grows and weighs so heavily upon me. Moreover, I have received information that the city in which we live will be burned with fire from heaven. When this happens, all of us will be destroyed unless by a way I do not yet see some way of escape can be found so that we may be delivered. Hearing this, his family was greatly amazed, not because they believed what he said to them was true, but because he, they thought he was losing his mind. Well, the picture we're given by Bunyan is of a man with a heavy backpack that burdens him down. But he becomes aware of this heavy burden as he begins to read the book, the scriptures. And as he begins to see the sin that is in his life, as he begins to understand the darkness that is upon him, he weeps, he cries, he trembles. He doesn't know what to do. He knows that if he does not find a way of escape, he is going to be cast into the fire. He loves his family. He loves his children. He wants to preserve his own life to care for his family. But he doesn't know how to do that. Now, his family helps him get to bed, hoping that in the morning his mind will be straight. But the night was as troublesome to him as the day. Instead of sleeping, he spent the night in sighs and tears. So when morning came, his, his family came to find out what he was doing, how he was doing. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm worse. I'm worse, he told them. And immediately he started speaking to them once more about his fears and concerns. They just turned cold toward him. They tried to change his outlook by treating him rudely. Sometimes they would chide him. Other times they would deride him. Or, or finally they just ignored him. So he began retiring to a, a private room to pray for them and to pity them, and also to try to find some consolation for his own misery. He would often walk alone in the field, sometimes reading and sometimes praying, and for a long time, this is how he spent his days. And then one day, I saw the man walking in the fields, reading in his book, greatly distressed in his mind, as he read, he burst out, as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? 
I noticed that he looked this way and that way, as if he would run, but he did not know which direction to run. And then I looked and I saw someone named Evangelist coming toward him. Evangelist came up to the man and asked, Why are you crying out? He answered, Sir, I understand from reading this book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to judgment. I am not willing to do the first, and I am not able to do the second. Well, why are you not willing to die since this life is attended with so much evil? Because I am afraid that this burden that is on my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into hell. And sir... If I'm not ready to die, then I'm not prepared to go to judgment and from that to execution. Thinking about these things distresses me greatly. The evangelist said, If that's your condition, why are you standing here? Because I don't know where to go. The evangelist gave him a parchment and unrolled it so that the man could read it. Flee from the wrath to come. He looked, and he said, Well, which way should I run? Evangelist, pointing with his finger to a very wide field, asked, Do you see that distant, narrow gate? No, replied the man. Well, do you see that distant, shining light? Oh, yeah, I, I think I do. Keep that light in your eye and go up directly toward it, and soon you will see a narrow gate. When you finally come to the gate, knock, and you will be told what you must do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. That was John Bunyan's understanding of what must take place in your life if you are to enter into the kingdom of God. You cannot waltz into the kingdom of God. You cannot dance your way, laugh your way. You cannot come to the kingdom of God as an object of prosperity, as the lying voice of many preachers will tell you today. It will cost you everything. And you must... Understand that you are destined to die. That must settle into your heart. Now, Jesus, he spoke in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, the New Testament covenant. Now, the old covenant was given at Mount Sinai, by Jesus. He was the one who spoke from that mountain. Jesus gave Ten Commandments and then he gave many other laws to regulate their culture and their life as he began to shape them as a people he could use. They had just come out of the womb of Egypt and they're now in the desert so in that place, the old covenant is spoken to them. Now Jesus comes 
and he sits on the Mount of Beatitudes. I have, I have stood on that Mount of Beatitudes. It's not a big mountain. It's just a hill. In fact, there's a banana grove on that hill where Jesus probably sat with his disciples and the crowds. It's not very far from the Sea of Galilee. It's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And the city of Magdala is right there. Now, Jesus, seeing the crowds, sits down with them. And now he is going to begin to lay out a stair-step process by which a man or a woman enters into the kingdom of God. You may never have heard this this way before, but we're going to spend the next days dealing with the Beatitudes, the happy attitudes. I hated when my father would say to me, Raymond, you have a bad attitude. Go to your room and stay there until you change your attitude. And if you cannot change your attitude, then I will come and I will give you a whipping. And that whipping will change your attitude. Well, he was right. I didn't want a whipping with that leather strap. So very quickly, my attitude changed. Well, these are the Beatitudes. The happy attitudes. In other words, this is the way of light. This is the way out of the darkness into the light. This is the way that a man must be converted, transformed, changed. And the first step in that transformation is given in the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Luke 6.20 also gives some of the Beatitudes, but he does not do the same thing that Matthew does. I think Matthew got a much closer understanding of the stair-step process. There are two words in the Greek that are often used for poor. One of those words for poor represents a man who is able by hard work to change his situation. The second poor is grinding poverty. Just barely surviving, but not making any progress forward. Struggling constantly. That's the word that is used here for poor. Now, many will say that Jesus was primarily interested in social justice, that Jesus was primarily concerned with economic justice, because Luke does not include poor in spirit. But I believe if you read carefully the entire Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew, you will come away from context with a very clear understanding that Jesus is speaking about this transition that the parable taught, coming out of the world into the palace of the king, having on the garment for the wedding 
feast and coming to the wedding banquet. If we deal only with the poor economically, then we are dealing with something very different than Jesus' heart is concerned about. He begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have grinding poverty in their spirit. In other words, a man or a woman who wants to follow Jesus must come to a place where they recognize their grinding poverty of spirit. And today we have a smorgasbord. We have a feast of the devil laid out before every American person. We have our television. We have our our iPads, our, our computers. We have our sports. Every kind of hobby you could ever think about. We have everything to disguise our grinding poverty of spirit so that we satiate or satisfy the hurt and longing of our heart by covering it over with all kinds of foolishness, things that don't really matter for eternity, but only matter here as a means of helping us to be more comfortable in our misery so that we don't even recognize the true condition of our heart and of our life and of our spirit. Look, a man's a man's spirit is the central part of his being that controls everything. His soul is his personality, the way he deals. But the soul is the essential element of what a man is. A man is poor, grindingly poor in his spirit when he is separated from Jesus Christ. And the anguish is quickly apparent, but we cover it with making money or buying that new car. We cover it by activities, travel. Many retired people love to travel. And in their travels, they can forget about the fact that they're getting older and they're going to die. It's not in the travel that our spirits are enriched. It's not in the love of nature that our spirits are enriched. It is in the knowledge of our true condition before God. And it is the absolute clarity of our heart that that heavy backpack of sin that rests in us and upon us is going to take us down into hell if we don't find a solution for our problem. I find many Christians want to say, well, I guess what is necessary is that I change my job. We need to move to a new place, or I need some new clothes. 
there's nothing wrong with needing new clothes. Right now I'm down to, I think, one white shirt. So it's probably apparent that I need to get a couple more white shirts. But there's no comfort in getting new white shirts for me. It's simply necessary that I not come and sit here without a shirt on as I do my broadcast on YouTube and on the radio. Now, I'm not talking about material things as being evil. I'm talking about what we do to cover over our nakedness of spirit. The poverty, the grinding poverty of our spirit. It's necessary that we begin to recognize the condition of our hearts before a mighty God. And the lies that have been spoken by many preachers today say, look, you're saved. You can't lose your salvation. Jesus loves you. So now all you need is fellowship with him to enjoy the fullness of your life. They're wrong. You need righteousness, real righteousness, to be totally transformed and changed into his likeness. Some that I speak with have made great progress toward the kingdom of God. But they still have... Well, they still have some of those issues in their heart. Let me read it for you. The third chapter of Colossians. If then you were raised up with Christ, you must seek the things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. You must set your mind upon these things, not upon the things of earth. For you died, and your life has been hid with Christ in God. When Christ, our life, may be manifest, then also you will be manifested with him in glory. Accordingly, you did voluntarily put to death your members that are upon the earth. And here are the members that were to put to death. Sexual immorality. Uncleanness lustful desires, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 8, But now, you did also voluntarily put off all of these things, anger, wrath, Ill will. Have you shown ill will toward a brother or a sister? Have you judged them? Cut them off? Evil speaking, gossiping, castigating, cutting down, slander. Obscene speech out of your mouth. You must not lie to one another. 
having already put off the old man with his practices. See, many today want to to gossip and slander. Evidence ill will in your heart. Anger and wrath. These things come because we don't have the wedding garment on yet. Because we have no real concept of the grinding poverty of our own spirit. This man Bunyan speaks of has become increasingly aware of his desperate condition before a holy and righteous God. He sees that he is going to be cast into hell if he cannot find a way of escape. And the evangelist tells him the way of escape is to run from this wickedness toward that gate and enter into that narrow gate. A Christian man made some very serious mistakes. The Lord gave him a wonderful job, and he needed that job. And then, during his probationary time, one morning he forgot his badge, and so He drove back home and got his badge, so he was 45 minutes late to work. And then he was working and decided, you know what? I'm just going to run out quick to Starbucks and get a coffee. wasn't the lunch break. It was work time. So he did that. On the elevator, one of... The executive people saw him and asked, where are you going? Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to run out to Starbucks. And then the third strike was the last day when he was again standing in line at Starbucks when he should have been driving to work. And so again was 20 minutes late. They immediately called him in and dismissed him. They fired him. They let him go. He recognizes that he was the reason he was fired. It was poor judgment. It was laziness. It was not taking seriously the job that he just entered into, one that would have been an excellent fit for him, and he would have loved it, would have had many benefits for his life but he lost it. He felt bad that he lost it. But I want to tell you that as I've spoken with him, I've seen no tears of remorse. Well, what do you mean, Pastor? God gave him a wonderful gift and he threw it away. That job came from the hand of God for him. But he doesn't sense his desperate need 
to feel what this man felt as he carried that heavy backpack on his back. No remorse. Casualness. Okay, next job. Would you think God's going to quickly give him another job? No, I don't think so. Please understand what I'm saying to you today. The first step in coming to Jesus Christ, and if you have not taken this step and you consider yourself a Christian, you're going to have to retrace and go back. And you're going to have to begin to feel and know the grinding poverty of your own spirit without any of those luxury things that seem to come in and overlay all of our lives so that we don't really have a sense of our desperate, desperate need for Jesus. Well, we're out of time for today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'd love to hear from you. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Or go to our go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can give online. We're about uh, $1,740 short of being able to pay for radio yet this month. If the Holy Spirit's prompting you to give, would you reach out and give? This is a faith venture. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. I love you. <laughs>